This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. I know many of you do not know uh, my friend uh, Joey and his wife Lori Gordon. I've known them since uh, back in 93, 94. Um, we were itinerating as missionaries at the same time. And uh, they taught me a game. I can't remember the game anymore, but it was something that Mark used to like playing. Uh, it'll come to me. But we go way back. Um, one day, Joey came to me and handed me a, a CD and told me it was the best message he's ever heard. He wanted me to listen to it. And I jokingly said, well, how did you get one of my sermons? Uh, but it was a, uh, a CD sermon, uh, Paris Reed had 10 shekels in a shirt. And he gave it to me, and I put it in my CD player, my van, and I wept almost the whole way home. It was impactful. And I really felt like that was a, a change in my life, and I, and, um, and I felt like maybe even Joey was changed by the message that God used this man to preach in the late 60s, early 70s. Joey a, is a man of God, loves Jesus, has been serving the Lord, and um, I'm not going to say too much more because I'd like for him to come on up, and let's give him a nice, warm, mosaic welcome. Good morning. I hope uh, everybody can get over the events of yesterday so we can enjoy our time with the Lord this morning. Is everybody over it now? You over it? Get it out of your spirit. Yesterday's gone. It's a new day. Amen? <laughs> I went to the University of Georgia, so it's actually a good day. So, <laughs> Oh, God is good. It is such an honor and a privilege to be with you guys. Uh, this is you guys. God has blessed you. This is a beautiful facility. I want to congratulate you guys. Man, this is uh, honoring to the Lord just to, to, to see that, you know, you're putting your time, your energy, your love, your passion into the things of God and to see how God is expanding. And so it's just a great honor to be with you today. For those of you, this is your first time. Uh, I want to do a disclaimer. You'll probably never hear anything like this ever again. So, so come back next week, try it again if you don't like it today. Amen? <laughs> so, uh, of all the things for a missionary to preach on, uh, I have felt this kind of prophetic word that's just been ringing in my spirit for uh, months now. And, uh, you know, there's some verses in the Bible. There's like 10 verses in the Bible that if you, they have all these books written about, you know, like hardest verses to understand and why is that in the Bible and it doesn't sound like God to me. Well, this is one of those verses. So let's tackle it together today. Are you guys with me? Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, and uh, if you're scared by the first part, just hold on. We'll, we'll probably get to somewhere, okay? Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, how is it? That Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received to the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? 
You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. You know, that's, uh, that last little part is one of the most useless pieces of information in the Bible. I mean, we all knew, right? <laughs> Everybody got scared. How many of you would get scared if somebody fell down dead today? Yeah, I mean, it's scary, right? We probably didn't need God to tell us that, that everybody got scared. And then if that wasn't bad enough, in a little bit, uh, Sapphira, the wife of Ananias, she comes home. And when she comes home, they ask her the same question. Hey, did, uh, how much did you sell the land for? And she said the same thing her husband did. And then she falls down and dies. Now, now, this is like terrifying. And in the middle of this terror then, it just goes on to casually say, in Acts chapter 12, but great miracles and signs and wonders were constantly being performed by the apostles, and God was still growing the church. So in the middle of all of this, God's still doing what God does, and the the church is growing. But whenever good things start happening, somebody always gets jealous. How many of you know that to be true? You never have a good thing happening without somebody looking at the good thing and saying, well, If it's happening to him and not happening to me, it must not be right. And so, because I'm a good guy and it should be happening to me, so this isn't right. And so, all the religious leaders get upset and they arrest the apostles and they throw them in prison. And this is all amazing to me, just how casually this is in the Bible. And then it just tells us casually that an angel comes in the middle of the night, lets them out of the prison, tells them, go out and preach again. So, in the morning, they go out and start preaching And while they're doing this, the religious leaders come back. They said, okay, call these guys we put in prison. And they said, hey, they're gone. They're not in prison. All the gates are locked, but they're not there. And so they said, well, where are they? And somebody says, oh, we saw them. They're out preaching in the courtyard. So they bring them in again. And they threaten them again. And then if you look at Acts chapter 5, verse 28, they bring them back in. And they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and they're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. In 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put him to death. But there's one guy on the council, his name was Gamaliel, and, and he told them, listen, you know, stuff like this has happened before. There were guys who said they knew God. And, uh, and they died, and it just kind of died out. So, hey, what's better is no need for us to kill these guys, because if we do, we may be fighting against God. And so they all agreed together, and they said, okay, let's don't kill them. Let's just beat them really bad. You know, it's a bad day when the voice of reason is beat them really bad. <laughs> I mean, that's the best option. <laughs> There's only two options, and the best option is just beat them really bad. And the apostles then are taken And they're beaten, verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's the story. It's kind of a rough story, right? Especially it doesn't sit well with our American sensibilities of, uh, of mercy, of uh, grace. I mean, this is, a, this is a hard story to process. So let me throw a few 
things out, a couple things you need to remember. Number one, God holds you accountable to the revelation that you have. God only holds you accountable to the revelation that you have. Laurie and I, uh, over 20 years ago, I was up hiking in the mountains, and I found this boy who'd been abandoned. And the villagers all told me, he's here, he's going to die. If you want him, you can have him. And so I said, well, give it to me in writing. And they wrote me a letter saying, this boy came wandering in our village. He's an abandoned child. He's going to die. And so uh, we give guardianship of this boy. And they wrote my name down, and they gave me a letter, and I brought him home. First day home, he's been living like just wandering, living for years. First day home, we bring him into our house and set him at the table, and Laurie has made biscuits and gravy in India, biscuits and gravy. I mean, we haven't had American food in forever, and I've got biscuits and gravy sitting on the table. So I bow my head and pray, and when I lift my head up and look, all the biscuits are gone. They're all gone. And he's sitting there straight face like this, and his shirt is puffed out. He's taken all the biscuits and put them under his shirt. Because in his world, things don't last. In his world, I've got to get what I can get as soon as I can get it. And you know what? That day, there was no judgment on him. What there was was grace. What I said to him was, hey, you can not only have all the biscuits, you can have everything. The kids. This is yours now. You're a part of our family now. You don't have to take from us. This is yours. It's yours. So I didn't bring judgment. I comforted him because the revelation he had of love and family was so low that I had zero expectations of etiquette. Does that make sense? But if Mario and I are sitting at a table together <laughs> and the biscuits are gone, <laughs> I'm going to say to Mario, you need to move away from the table. I, wh why did you take all my biscuits? I expect more from Mario, right? You see, we live in a time none of us in this room have seen Jesus. So let me just let you off the hook. I don't expect anybody to die today. It's good news, right? Nobody's going to fall down. None of you in here have physically seen a miracle with your eyes. None of you have experienced Christ in person. You see, in the Old Testament, it seems like, wow, God was harsh, right? You see, the reason God was so harsh in the Old Testament is because God was so good to reveal himself. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's, there's judgment, but it's judgments against people who literally watched an ocean part in front of them. These are people that literally walked across an ocean on dry ground. These are people that literally saw a rock, hit a rock, water comes out of the rock. These are people that are hungry, and literally every day God sends food down from heaven for them that tastes like honey wafers. I mean, you could be a vegan and be happy with God. <laughs> I mean, this is good stuff. I mean, he revealed himself in such ways. Literally, when they first built the tabernacle, it said that, like, literally, the glory of God, the presence of God was so real that the face of Moses, his prophet, would, like, shine. I mean, like, God revealed him in such ways that there was a greater expectation because he had given so much more. Does that make sense? And to whom much is given, what happens? Much is required. And because God gave them a lot, God required a lot. I'm showing you that I'm real. You have no reason to doubt. And if you're going to doubt and turn against me after I've done all this, the expectations are higher on your life. 
You see, Ananias and Sapphira were people that during those days, everybody had a relative who'd been healed by Jesus. I mean, Jesus had been through the area healing everybody. Everybody had a relative who was either fed when the 5,000 were fed or they were there when the 5,000 were fed. Everybody had an encounter. Everybody had an experience. And so Ananias and Sapphira knew better than to lie to God. They knew better. They weren't like the young man at my table who was an outcast that didn't know better. They were people that knew better than to think that they could fool God. And so judgment was greater. So you need to know this. You're always held accountable to the revelation that you have. Literally, in the New Testament, there's only one other event like this. Herod, who was a king, it says that like literally worms ate him up. And if you actually read back through the scripture, the night before Jesus, when he was betrayed, Jesus actually stood before Herod and talked to Herod. Herod had a physical encounter with Christ. Herod should have known better. So I say all that to say judgment was not normative in the Bible. Mercy and grace was normative. The extreme, extraordinary measure was judgment. The normative measure was mercy. And I want you to know today that to this day, yes, God judges, but normally God gives mercy. And I'm here today because normally God gives mercy. I was a 20-year-old alcoholic. My parents uh, divorced when I was uh, a teenager. My mom left. My dad left. I was alone I turned to drugs and alcohol for comfort to, to get through life. And then Jesus found me. He changed my life because God is a God of mercy. The majority of the New Testament was written by a man named Paul, who was a man who literally was the one giving his authority to the people who killed the first martyr in the church. The first man to die for the name of Jesus was killed at the authority of a man named Saul who became Paul, the great apostle who preached the Gentiles, people like you and me, so we could be here today because God's normative interaction is mercy. And only in extreme measures does God show his judgment here and now. That's comforting, isn't it? But it's also something that we have to take to heart that those of us who've seen a lot, those of us who know a lot, to whom much has been revealed, to whom much has been given, God requires much more. So why are these stories then there? I really do believe that these stories are here in the Bible for one reason, and that is a contrast. And the contrast is this. Here's the scripture, wrap your head around this, Acts 5.2. Instead of Ananias, he kept back a part for himself. He kept back a part for himself. So here you have Ananias. The story of Ananias is what happens when we keep back a part for ourselves. When we keep back a part for ourselves, it always leads to death. And then you have the apostles and the apostles in the book of Luke, when they were talking to Jesus, they said to Jesus, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. So here you have this man, Ananias and Sapphira, who decided, God, we're going to 
partially follow you. We're going to give part of ourselves to you. We're going to give part of what we have to you, and that leading to death. And here then you have the apostles who gave everything, and giving everything led to life for others. You see the difference? This is the contrast that the Spirit of God wants you to see. If we want to see life for others, it only comes when we give everything. When we keep back apart for ourselves, we don't know why they did. Maybe they just wanted people to notice them and to pat them on the back and say, wow, you're so generous, look how much you've given. Maybe it was because they were worried about their future. If we give it all, how, how are we going to retire? How am I going to send my kids to college? How am I going to pay for the marriage? How am I going to take care of my grandkids? Maybe they were worried about their future. Maybe it was the pressure from other family members. Maybe their family was saying, hey, you can't give it all. We're part of this too. We really don't know why. But we do know this. God doesn't accept anything less than all of us. God doesn't accept anything less than all of us. That's tough, isn't it? You see, primarily we live in a world where we want to we wanna have these uh, areas of life. I have my family. I have my job. I have my free time. And then I have my God moments. And we want to live in these compartmentalized moments of life. And, uh, and we make our decision based on the day, based on what my priority of the day is. We live in these compartments. But God wants all of us. All of our identity. Who are you? That's one of the toughest questions I see in America today. In America today, this idea of dual identity is what I believe is destroying the church. Because we have people who want to be an American Christian. We have people that want to be a baseball playing Christian. We have people that want to have a loyalty and also follow Jesus. And let me tell you, nationalism can be idolatry. It can be idolatry. I see things happening around that you wonder, man, that's not Jesus. How many of you see things happening in society that you think, man, that's not Jesus? But then we rationalize it, but it's what's best for us. Wow. You see what happens when you don't give it all to Jesus, when you have dual identity, when you hold back a little bit for yourself? Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but I'm also this. I have seen in the church one of the greatest things, and I'll just throw it out there because it may be five more years before I come back, so I'll just throw it out there. Travel ball. How many of you know what travel ball is? Travel ball is of the devil. I'm just telling you. I see families that they pour heart, soul, mind, strength, everything into making sure their son is a good baseball player, making sure their, their son is good, and they spend a lifetime chasing after this thing and at the end of chasing this thing, we're lost. It's an identity outside of Christ. It's good to play baseball. It's good to play soccer. It's good to play football. It's good to enjoy things. But when that thing becomes your identity, you've lost it with Christ. 
Are you guys with me today? Any identity outside of Christ, anything that pulls you away, if what's in the best interest of my nation is not in line with the interest of Christ, at some point I have to choose which identity I value more. Are you guys with me? Am I loyal to nation or am I loyal to Christ? Am I loyal to an activity or am I loyal to Christ? Where do my loyalties lie? What do I value more than anything else in my life? What is the value of my life? And all of us at some point have to decide, are we going to hold back a part to ourselves? This is why the apostles always describe themselves in these terms. We're pilgrims, strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven. That we're not attached to anything in the here and now. Our attachments are with Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. And that's why I don't believe we should ever put any word before Christ. You're not an American Christian. You are a follower of Christ who lives in America. Amen? And because I'm a follower of Christ who lives in America, I'm called to be loyal. I'm called to do what's, you know, to do good things. I'm, I'm called to be helpful, but my identity is in Christ. I'm a follower of Christ who was born into my family. And so I love my family, but my identity is in Christ. Our identity in Christ. We hold back nothing from our identity. We hold back nothing in our wealth. We hold back nothing in our time. We hold back nothing in, in the gifts that God has given us. Every part of our life for Jesus. Let me tell you, giving it all doesn't make life easy. All that I am, all that I have, all my dreams, all my ambitions, all my time, all my life. Giving it all doesn't make life easy. Scripture is filled with a warning of what it means to follow Jesus. I love when the Apostle Paul describes his life. He describes it like this. He says, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger in false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. Do you notice that when Paul describes his journey with Christ, the number one word he used was danger? How many of you know we live in a risk averse society today. I'm a, uh, by, uh, by occupation, I'm actually a uh, mountain climber. That's what I do by occupation. I own a mountaineering business. My son is really into rock climbing. So yesterday morning, uh, I was at the rock climbing gym early in the morning, and we climbed up until we came here. And what I've noticed is this. When you climb in the gym, it's very different of climbing on the rocks. Because when I'm in the gym, when I fall, I hit the mat. <laughs> when I'm on the boulder, I fall, and it hurts. And that's why the majority of climbing today is done in gyms, not on rocks. Because as a society, we really don't like bruises that much. <laughs> we really don't like the pain that is associated with coming off the rock. It's tough. We live in a risk-averse society today. But I was thinking about this this morning. You know, my son and I, we watch a lot of climbing videos. That's, 
that's what we do for fun. We watch climbing videos. And so, so I was noticing this when watching climbing videos. You, your first takeaway, Laurie was watching part of it with us the other day, and she said, Caleb, please don't do that. Everything we're watching, Caleb, please don't do that. <laughs> Caleb, please don't try that. I mean, that's her reaction to all of our climbing videos that we're watching. Oh, Caleb, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And, and I was thinking to myself, climbing is dangerous. How many of you know that? Climbing is dangerous. But do you know what is more dangerous than climbing? Sitting on the couch. The only thing more dangerous than running and hurting your knees is sitting on the couch. The only thing more dangerous than CrossFit and lifting weights is sitting on the couch. You see, there's something more dangerous than living, and that is watching others live. And actually, the health risk of not getting involved is more dangerous than the risk of getting involved. How many of you know that to be true? The danger of watching others live is actually more of a risk than actually risking yourself and living yourself. And let me tell you, that's true of following after Jesus. The greatest danger you will ever face is not getting into the line of fire with Jesus. It's not getting on the front line with Jesus. It is not putting yourself out there and experiencing the inherent dangers of being a follower of Christ. The most dangerous thing you can do in the kingdom of God is to hold back a little and sit back and watch others do it. At that point, you're risking your soul. You're risking the life that God actually has for us. This is what Christ has called us to. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is the call of Christ. When he called his first disciples, Luke chapter 9, 23. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Self-denial was the very first thing that mattered to Jesus. Because Jesus knew that the greatest danger you have is yourself. The greatest danger to you is not the devil. The greatest danger to you is not the world. The greatest danger to you is you. <laughs> the greatest danger to me is me. Until the age of 20, I never listened to anybody. I always did what I wanted to do. And what I thought was good for me only led me to death. What I thought would be helpful for me only brought me pain. But when I decided I don't know what's best for me, I think I'm going to let Jesus decide for me, then I have life. Before Jesus, I had no life. After Jesus, I can look back today, coming from a broken home, coming from a life without structure, coming from a life without boundaries. I have been married now for 27 years. I have three sons. I have life today. I have joy today because I found that it wasn't in doing what I want, but in following the path of Christ that I accepted Jesus knows better than me. That Jesus has better plans for my life than I have for my own life. That his desires for me are better than my desires. And it was in following, in denial, that I walked into life. And whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. It's no good to gain the whole world if we lose ourselves. Doesn't mean life is easy, 
The apostles went back to their nets many times. The apostles often struggled with the cost of following Jesus. But what Jesus desires above everything else is authenticity. You know, this is what the apostle was saying to Ananias. Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? Didn't it belong to you after you sold it? This was your money. You could have made whatever decision you wanted to make. You could have kept back a little for yourself if you just were authentic. If you just came and said, you know what, God, I want to give it all, but I'm scared. I'm really scared. I don't know how I'm going to make it this month. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. And God, I, I really feel like I'm supposed to give it, but God, I just can't. And you know what? When we are authentic with God, God is always gracious with us. What God really wants is authenticity. God is not looking for a people who don't have fear. One of the great things you see in climbing is, you know, there's this idea. We see some of these guys doing some of these crazy things in climbing. And one of the things we think is, how are they not afraid? Right? Let me tell you, the climbers I know would tell you this, I never climb with somebody who's not afraid. Because people who are not afraid push too far. Fear is not actually really a bad thing. The issue is, what do you do with your fear? Do you allow your fear to control you? You see, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing what's right even when you're afraid. Courage is not the absence of fear. God is not looking for psychopaths who are not afraid. God is looking for authentic people who say, God, I'm scared to death. God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but God, I choose to trust that you know better than me. Laurie and I haven't been in India for the past 26 years because it doesn't scare us sometimes. You know, we have uh, three wonderful sons. Our middle son is a special needs child. He was diagnosed with autism when he was five years old. He was diagnosed with uh, muscular dystrophy when he was 13 years old. He has uh, been now found, he has a very rare genetic mutation that causes all of these things in him. He is on the autistic spectrum. He has a very low IQ. He has severe learning disabilities. Uh, his muscle coordination, his, uh, he's in significant pain most of the time, and, and he struggles. And when he was five years old, he was first diagnosed with autism. And we were on our way to Laos at that time. And we had a decision to make. We knew God had spoken to us to go to Laos, but we also knew that our son, this was not a good move. We happened to be living at that time in Atlanta right by uh, the children's hospital that was one of the best in the world dealing with, you know, what he had. And so here we are, we're in the right place where he can be taken care of, but we know God is telling us to go. And there's a battle because then the battle is between my responsibility as a father to take care of my son and my responsibility as a son to do what my father is asking me to do. Have you ever felt pulled in that position? That, uh, because I'm two things at once. I am a father, but I'm also a son. And at some point, we had to come to this idea of reckoning. Who wants what's best for our family? Who knows what's best for our family? And there came a moment of decision. God, I choose to believe 
you love my son more than I love my son. I choose to believe that your plans for my son are better than any plan I could ever make for my son. God, I choose to believe you. So we went to Laos. And the first few years were really, really tough, really tough. My wife was homeschooling three kids, one with special needs. It was really tough. And after a couple years, we just got to this end moment of, God, I don't know if we can take this anymore. And so one night, after a lot of tears, we cried and prayed and said, God, we're ready to die for you, but I don't know if we can hold this any longer. We need to know you're in this. We just need to know you're there. A couple weeks later, I get a mail from this lady, and she writes and says, for the last few years, I've known I'm supposed to come and work with you, and I just haven't been able to do it. Just haven't been able to let go. She said, but I've just felt the last few weeks, I got to do it. She said, God's been speaking to me to come and work with your family. And she said, I don't know why. I'm not a missionary. I don't have Bible training. She said, but I know God's telling me. She said, just to tell you who I am, she said, uh, I'm a special ed teacher. I've been teaching autistic children the last three years. And if you would allow me, I feel like I'm supposed to come and serve your family. And for the last 12 years of his life, my son has had one-on-one attention from special ed educator. And we're back home right now because he's 18 years old. He loves Jesus. He's functioning in society today. And we're home today because my son needs to settle back down in the States. And we were worried again, God, what are we going to do? How are we going to leave our son behind? I don't want to put him in a group home. I don't want to abandon my responsibility. What am I supposed to do? And this same lady came to us and said, my call hasn't ended. God has told me that wherever he goes, that's my mission in life. And she's here now. We're settling him in. She's going to be living here with him, helping him, being there with him so that we can continue to follow the plans of God. Because let me tell you, God's plans for my life and my family were better than any plans I could have ever dreamed for myself. Because God loves my son more than I could ever love my son. God's plans are better than my plans. Let me tell you, God is not trying to destroy your life when he asks you to deny yourself. God is trying to give you life that you are keeping yourself from. God has better plans than you. But when you hold back a little for yourself, it leads to death. It's keeping you from the life that God has for you. See, the story of the early church is people who gave it all, and in giving it all, it constantly led to life. Because they gave it all, everywhere they went, there were miracles. Everywhere they went, people found life. Everywhere, they they themselves experienced some pain. They experienced some, some separation. They experienced some isolation. But in taking a little pain for themselves, they helped others to find life in Christ. And that's the plan of Christ for each and every one of us. When we live for ourselves, people die. When we die to ourselves, people live. When we hold back a little for ourselves, it's like the children of Israel trying to store up manna. It rots. (laughs) But when we trust the Lord, God brings what we need every day. And he does it in surprising ways miraculous ways. Around the world today, Joshua Project, which is a, uh, a site that keeps us 
up to date with what's happening around the world in missions. There are 17,060 people groups around the world. These are groups of people that are distinguished by their language, by their culture, by their ethnicity, by the geography of where they are distinct groups of people. So around the world, there are 17,060 distinct groups of people. Out of those groups, 7,096 of those groups remain unreached today. That's 41% of all the people groups in the world today remain unreached. In India alone, 2,584 people groups just in India, 2,311 remain unreached, 89%. India has a population 1.36 billion people. That's larger than the continent of Africa, larger than the continent of Europe. 1.3 billion remain unreached. 96% of the population of India remains unreached. This is 2,000 years after Jesus said, go into all the world. 2,000 years after Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. 2,000 years after Jesus gave his command, 2,000 years after Jesus gave us the power of his spirit, we live in a day today where we have more technology, more money, more of what we need to reach the world, and yet we're not doing it. Why does the world remain unreached is because we keep back a part for ourselves. I mean, part of us is all in with Jesus. Part of us is, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. But we also want the house. We also want the car. We also want the education. We also want our kids to have a certain lifestyle and certain experiences. Yes, I mean, we, we want Jesus but it's in the middle of wanting a lot of other things. We're, we're giving to Jesus, but we're holding back a part of who we are, holding back a part of what we have, holding on to a little bit of the world while giving a little bit to Jesus. You know, I'm blessed to have uh, lived my life around people who... Uh, found Jesus in just extreme circumstances. I have a, a Muslim friend. His name is Guljar Hussein. I shouldn't call him a Muslim friend. He was a Muslim. He's now a follower of Jesus. His name is Guljar Hussein. And uh, he worked with me in my mountaineering business. And through that, we got to spend a lot of time together walking trails and got to share. He gave his heart to Jesus. He went home and told his father he was following Jesus. His father beat him up, locked him in a room, uh, miraculously, uh, he was able, it was, I mean, it's like book of Acts, miraculously an angel came and he gets out of the house and uh, comes to serve the Lord and uh, some men tried to burn him alive and he's still serving the Lord and uh, persecution starts and he's still serving the Lord. And so one day in the middle of all of this, things are getting really rough. For six months, we're barely able to leave the house because they've got posters of us around town, you know, watch out for these men, and it's, it's getting really bad. And so we're praying one day because there was a village where we had some people who were interested in the gospel. 
And uh, the villagers sent us a letter saying, if you ever come back to our village again, we're going to burn you alive. And so at that moment, you're like, well, we probably can't walk into the village again. And so uh, there was only one road into the village, and there was a check post there, and they had our pictures there at the check post. Watch out for these men. Don't allow them in the village. So we're praying one day, God, there's these people, and they, they, they said they want to hear. What are we supposed to do about that? And so as we're praying, Guljar stands up and said, I got it. God showed me what to do. I said, that's great. What are we supposed to do? He said, well, you know, so if we try to go in the village, we'll just never make it. He said, but there's another road that goes out of the valley. It will take us about 12 hours on a bus. And then from there, there's another road that swings back around to the other side of the mountain, and that only takes about 12 hours. And from there, there's a trail. It only takes about 10 days, and we can walk. And that trail will bring us into the back of the village and we'll be able to walk into the village and start preaching before we know they're, we're there. They, they won't even know it. I said, but after they know it, they're going to burn us alive. See, yeah, but we'll get a chance to preach. And that's his great idea. And there's two other guys there, and they're like, that's it. That's a great idea. Let's do it. I'm like, what? What are you guys talking about? They're like, no, 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 let's do it. And we're like, okay, so I'm supposed to be the leader. So I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we get in the bus and we do our 12 hours, do our 12 hours, and we start walking. And what's called a trail is, I mean, you know, we're up, this area, we're up on the, uh, in the mountains, up in the Himalayas, and uh, the starting point is 13,000. That's the low point. So you're starting at 13,000. And then every day we hit these peaks, there's a mountain range in between us and the village. So every day, you'd have to walk over these passes that are like 18,000, and you walk through the snow, come down the other side, set up your tent, go to sleep. Next day, we do the same thing. We come down, go to sleep. Next day, we do the same thing. So nine days, we do this. The 10th day, we finally get over the range. Now we're in the valley where this village is, and we come walking up to the village, and we get there, and there's a dry riverbed right in front of the village. So we've been walking all day, get to the edge of the village, and we sit down. And me and another one of our young guys, his name was Sonam, we get there first. So we sit down at the village. And I'm looking at this village, and it strikes me. You know, now, now reality's hitting. I mean, it's all fun and games when you're just walking around. But now, this is it. They have said if we walk in their village, they're going to burn us alive. I got a letter signed by all the elders of the village. They're going to burn us alive. So we're sitting there, and we're looking at this village. And I turned to him, and I said, well, we're here. Said, yeah, and I said probably too late to turn back now. He said, yep, too late. I said, are you afraid? He said, yeah, I'm afraid. He said, how about you? I said, yeah, I'm afraid. I don't want to die. I want to see my kids grow up. I said, well, let's pray and let's ask for strength. So we bow our heads and start praying. And the moment, I mean, we'd only been praying like less than a minute, this massive flock of pigeons comes flying out of nowhere. <laughs> right over the top of our head. And it, I mean, it was so close, you could literally like feel the wind off their wings. <laughs> like, and it just startled us. And so we look up and this flock of about 100 pigeons goes, <laughs> they come flying over the top of us and they go, <laughs> they fly around <laughs> and then they land right on top of the tallest village, uh, house in the village. And Sodom is one of these, I'm not very spiritual. Sodom is one of these, he sees spiritual everywhere. You know, how many of you know people like that? Everything is spiritual. Like he gets a milkshake and said, oh, that looks like Jesus' face. And, you know, he's one of those, he sees everywhere he's spiritual. So, so he sees that and he jumps up and he said, that's it. The spirit of the Lord has gone before us. We are safe. Let's go preach in the village. And I said, 
man, the Bible don't say nothing about pigeons. It talks about doves. And I don't know what you're talking about. Them's pigeons, not doves. He said, no, I'm telling you, man, that is a sign from the Lord. We're safe. The Spirit of God's in that village. Let's go. And uh, sometimes it's just better to be confident than afraid. So you're like, well, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, it's better than being afraid. So we stand up. And while we're standing up, now we've been sitting there a while now. And while we're there, there was a guy all day long, he's on a yak. And he's, he's catching up with us all day. Because he's just slow and steady on the yak. And he's back there. And when you get up on the plateau, you're above the tree line. So no trees grow. So you can just see forever once you get out of the mountains. It's up on the Tibetan plateau. And you can just see forever. And you, all day long, every time I turn around, I can see this guy in the far distance. And he's just riding along on this yak. And so while we'd been sitting there, he got close enough to shout at us. And so we're standing there with our backpacks on, getting ready to move. And he shouts. So we wait. He comes down, gets off his yak, walks over to me and looks in my face. And then he looks into Solon's face and he backs up and said, I know you guys. I've seen your picture in our village. And he's smiling. He said, he said, this is great. He said, uh, I'm one of the ones that sent you the letter that said, if you ever came to our village again, we're burn you alive. And he's just smiling. And it's like, man, this guy. Maybe he should be on one of those serial killer podcasts. I mean, this, he's excited about us being there. I mean, this is like morbidly frightening at this moment. And he's just smiling. I'm like, man, should we start running? And he said, I'm so glad you came back. He said, two weeks ago, and we traced it back to the time we'd been praying. He said, two weeks ago, he said, we had a village meeting with the elders because life's just been bad. He said, for the last six months... He said, uh, you see the river's dry? This river's never been dry. We have no water. Our crops are failing. Our children are sick. We've had fighting and tension in the village. So we had a meeting of the elders. And as we were talking, one of the elders said, you know, we can trace our problems back to when we sent a letter to you saying we'd burn you alive. He said, maybe our problems are because we offended the God of those people. He said, so that day we decided as the elders to pray, and we prayed this prayer. God, if you are the true God, and if we have offended you, please send your servants back so that we can make things right. He said, I'm so glad you came back. And when we walked in the village, he starts shouting, come out. The servants of God are back. Come out. And they all came together into the village, the little meeting hall, and we preached the gospel to them. When we finished preaching, the chief elder of the village stood up and said, from this day forward, Jesus Christ is welcome in our village. Any of you that want to follow him, we will never stop you again. We will never hinder. He's welcome in this village. And from that area today, we have over a dozen Buddhist monks who let put down their robes and are following Jesus today. Many of them are in ministry today, and lives are being changed today. Because when you die to yourself, people live. People live. That's the plan of God for all people is that all people would find the life and the hope we have in Christ. But in the same way that people live when we die, people die when we choose to live to ourselves. Because for every village like that out there, there's thousands that have never heard because it's not in our best interest. There's thousands of peoples out there who've never been engaged because it might not be good for us. Might not be good for my family. Might not be good for my future. When we hold back a little for ourselves, people die. 
when we give it all, people live. How many of you ever heard the song, and I'm going to close with this. How many of you ever heard the song, I have decided to follow Jesus? You guys ever heard that song? That song was actually written in India. It was uh, popularized by a young man named Sadhu Sundar Singh, who was from a Sikh background. He accepted Jesus when he was 15, went home and told his father. His father beat him and threw him out of the house. And from that day, he walked around India like an, like an Indian holy man, barefoot with saffron robes, walked India telling people about Jesus from the age of 15 till he died in his 30s, just going and telling people about Jesus. And he wrote this song about the story of a man who accepted Christ. There's a people group called the Garo people in India. The very first man who came to the Lord in the Garo tribe, he accepted the Lord his wife and his children then followed the Lord. The chief of the village called him in. And he told him, if you don't reject Jesus, we will kill your family. And he said these words. Yesu ke piche me charne laga. Na lotunga, na lotunga. I have decided to follow Jesus. I will not turn back. I will not turn back. And they killed his children in front of him. And then they told him, if you don't reject Jesus, your wife is next. And he said, Jokoi mere satna ave na latunga. Though no one go with me, still I will follow. I will not turn back. And then finally, he set to die. And he said, Cruz sat me age, dunia mere piche, na lotunga, na lotunga. The cross before me, the world behind me. I will not turn back. And he died. And what happened that day is people started to weep, people started to question, people started to call on the name of the Lord. And from that seed, the very first person among the Garo tribe to accept Jesus, 99% of all the Garo people in India today are followers of Jesus Christ. 99%. If you go into a Garo village, I've never been into a Garo village where there's not a church. I've never been into a Garo village where on Sunday every seat is not packed. A whole tribe was changed because of one man who held nothing back. Let me tell you, the world is waiting on a people who hold nothing back for themselves. But say, Jesus, every part of me is for every part of you. My life belongs to you. Use me for your glory. Would you stand with me this morning? And I just want to ask you just to do this. This may be strange, but just lift both your hands. And all that means is I give up. I surrender. I surrender. Lord, I surrender. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. 
I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Lord, we have come to you today to give it all. And Lord, we want to be authentic with you today. We recognize we've held back so much from you today. And Lord, we've done it just because we're afraid, because we're weak. Lord, we're so afraid of what might happen that we've never fully given everything to you. We're so afraid about where you might take us that we've never fully given ourselves to you. We're so afraid of losing our own dreams, of losing the things that we want that we've never fully released ourselves to you. And Lord, we ask you today, Lord, help us to trust you more. As the man who brought his son to Jesus said to you, Lord, we believe, help us to believe you more. Lord, we trust you, but help us to trust you more. Help us to trust you with every area of our life with every dream, every ambition, every desire, every possession, every moment of every day, to trust you with our family, to trust you with our future, to trust you with our finance, to trust you with our lives. Lord, teach us to trust you more. And Lord, I pray that every day you would help us, Lord God, to trust you a little bit more, to walk with you a little bit closer. Lord, help us, Lord God, to trust you, to trust you with our lives, Lord God. So, Lord, we come to you today and we say, here's our life. Take us and use us, Lord. Take us and use us, Lord. Please remember today that life is like running a marathon, if you have never run in your life and you want to run a marathon, you don't wake up tomorrow morning and run 24 miles. If you want to run a marathon, what you do is you wake up tomorrow and maybe you walk a mile. And then next week, maybe you walk two miles. And then the next week, maybe you could run a mile. And the next week, maybe you could run two miles. And you just keep growing and you keep achieving until one day you can get to the final goal of being able to run a marathon. You see, the Lord's not asking you to pack your bags and go to a jungle today. The Lord's not asking you to lay down your life today. I believe what the Lord is asking us is to give a little bit more of ourselves today than we did yesterday. To continue to walk this journey with him of step-by-step step, learning to trust him, learning to trust 
The stories I talk about my life are a lifetime of learning to trust, of incremental steps of seeing the Lord work and knowing that the Lord can do it and then trusting him for the next thing and then trusting him for the next thing. I want to encourage you guys. You don't have to dive in to the end of the pool today. You just need to step into the water today and start walking in with Jesus and asking the Lord every day, Lord, teach me to trust you more. Would you just pray that with me? Lord, we ask you, Lord, teach us to trust you more today. Lord, I just pray that you would begin to show us areas in our life Lord, we recognize, Lord God, when we're being authentic with you, we're weak today. We can't just lay it all before you today. But God, I pray that you would show us slowly, surely, Lord, areas of our life to give today. Show me areas that need to be laid down today. Show me things that I need to give back today. And Lord, we want to get to a place where we can honestly say we have given everything to follow you. Lord, we recognize that may not happen today or tomorrow. But God, that's our desire. That's the journey that we're on. And Lord, we want to slowly, methodically lay every idol down at your feet. Slowly and methodically lay down every dream, lay down every ambition. So God, we just pray that you would help us in this journey. That Lord, we would be holding nothing back from you. God, help us to trust that you're not trying to steal our life. You're trying to give us life. You're not trying to steal our future. You are trying, Lord God, to teach us to walk into the great future that you have for us. Lord, teach us to trust that your plans are so much better than our plans. So, Lord, we just love you today. And we say, help us, Lord, to authentically walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you for listening. We pray that you were blessed and encouraged. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast and listen whenever you like. To find out more about Mosaic Church, please visit www.mosaicchurchtlh.com.